when anybody has their first job at an accounting firm, you're you're the grunt employee. You're you're getting the supplies. You're you're running to get copies and make copies. And and so one of the tasks that a staff auditor is tasked with is doing audit confirmations. Is the money really in the bank? And if so, how much? And to the customers, do you really owe this company a certain amount of money? If I wanted to commit fraud, I know how I would do it because the client could be in their office just waiting uh, to find out how long I'm willing to stand by a fax machine and wait for a fax to come back because they're the one that gave me the fax number in the first place. And that was the gap, the, the process that I saw was broken and had been for 100 years and thought we could use this newfangled thing called the internet uh, to solve the problem. From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, this is Circle Back, season two. This is the show where we trace the life cycle of the startup from bright idea to big payoff. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. Today, a guy who had to think like a thief to strike it rich. Somebody there may be trying to pull one over on us and their investors. But even he wasn't wise to a swindle by some trusted teammates. They were stealing cash. If you think of accounting as a boring foreign language, get ready to be schooled and how not to be fooled. The story of Brian Fox and Confirmation.com, next on Circle Back. Provide a fake fax number, fake mailing addresses. You see it over and over, and it was that simple. I'm a Nashville native, grew up in Nashville. My, my parents are from here. My grandparents are from here. And as I look at my family history, just it seems, feels like just about everybody was entrepreneurial. My great-grandfather had a, his own business, and then my grandfather had his own manufacturing business with plants in Chattanooga and Nashville. And then my grandmother, after my grandfather passed away, uh, was single and she started her own dress shop. Uh, Patty French's dress shop in the middle of Green Hills, which then later became Coco's. My other grandmother uh, started Sarah's Candies that I used to work at in the summers. And so I was kind of surrounded by entrepreneurs and growing up did the lemonade stands and working in the summers for my, my grandfather. If youthful ambition is any indication, Brian Fox was a safe bet from the jump. Business was in his blood, and he was counting money before he was shaving. So I was, we were selling lemonade. I think it was probably a friend of mine and I had done a lemonade stand, felt like every other weekend. And uh, we were out there selling lemonade. My mom said, hey, you know, there's some flowers in the empty lot behind our house. They were just some sunflowers. She said, why don't you go cut some of those and see if anybody will buy those? And so we, we cut a handful and put them out on the table. And sure enough, people started stopping by not just to buy the lemonade but to buy the flowers and so we wore ourselves out running you know back and forth or riding our bikes back and forth as fast as we could to cut all the flowers in the back field behind our our house and putting them in these little vases and trying to sell them and it was we really truly had lines of people lining up to buy flowers and lemonade from our our stand and i remember we made over a hundred dollars selling lemonade that day which was a lot of money I was very encouraged 
to think about business all along the way. My grandmother, when her mom died when she was 12, and her father raised two daughters, and my grandmother was the youngest of two girls, and he bought them a duplex and had them manage it. Uh, even in their teens. He wanted them to learn business. He was a business owner and he wanted them to learn business. And so she did the same thing with my brother and I. Uh, she bought us three duplexes uh, when I was 16 and my brother was 13. And we were over there cutting the grass and collecting rent and uh, mending fences. I always had the desire to want to run something and see if I could grow it from an early age. I started a driveway ceiling company when I was uh, in high school and college. So one of my best friends and I went around and knocked on doors and resealed driveways for the summer. And I just love the fact that we were out there and the, the effort that we put into it was a direct reflection of what we got out of it. I was at SMU. My intent was to be a finance background and do a finance major. And as I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur at some point in life, I was interviewing entrepreneurs along the way. And, and one of the things just about all of them said to me when I asked the question, what would you have done differently? Almost universally, they said they would have taken more accounting classes. They wish they'd known more about their business, that accounting really is the foreign language of business. Your life works. To be an accountant, you must be able to analyze a business by examining its records. The various fields in accounting offer excellent opportunities with a good income for young men and women who are really suited to the work. And so, because I'm one of those people who likes to get the pain out of the way first, I, I like to eat the peas on my plate so I can enjoy the rest of the meal, I went and took a bunch of accounting classes, knowing that I wanted to enjoy the finance classes, and uh, kind of woke up and had more accounting classes than I did finance, and, and looked at that and said, you know, I'm closer to an accounting major, and that would set me apart, uh, distinguish me a little bit in the job market from the rest of my classmates who were all finance majors. And so... I asked, you know, what do you do with an accounting degree? And the answer was go work for a big six firm at the time. And so I, I interviewed and it came down for me between Ernst & Young and Arthur Anderson. And I was fortunate, uh, looking back, I picked Ernst & Young because I just loved the people that were there and they seemed to really enjoy what they were doing. My first year, I was happy to staple, copy, fax, do whatever they, they told me to do. I always tell folks that, you know, when my grandmother would call me, she, you know, she would she would ask how it was going. I'd say, this is absolutely mind-numbingly boring. Can't believe that somebody's paying a college student to do this. And uh, she'd say, you, know, you put a, a smile on your face and you show up and work harder than the boy and the girl in the cube next to you because they're paying your paycheck. And I said, yes, ma'am. By year two, Brian was overseeing those audit confirmations. And I do mean overseeing basically staring down at a fax machine. I remember standing over a fax machine, literally waiting for a confirmation to come back from Wells Fargo. And I sat there thinking to myself, you know, I was told to stand over this fax machine and wait for this confirmation to come back because the rules required that I watch it come over the client's fax machine. If I'd gone to get a cup of coffee, somebody would come in, handed it to me from the client, I would have, quote, lost control and had to recall Wells Fargo and ask him to fax the confirmation back. Think of it as the paper trail version of trust, yet verify. Just because an entity claims to have an account doesn't always mean that account is real or the funds are there. It's an antiquated process. We've been doing them since the 1920s. And we essentially mail a bunch of uh, letters 
asking banks and customers, is the money really in the bank? And if so, how much? And to the customers, do you really owe this company a certain amount of money, right? So it's their payables and the company's receivables that we're auditing. And because it's a painful process, typically 42% of the time they don't come back on time or, or at all. And so you have to send re-requests. And so I remember standing there for about 30, 45 minutes waiting for that fax to come back and said to myself, you know, this is crazy. I'm two years out of college. Ernst & Young's paying me a lot of money to stand over a fax machine. But ultimately, if I wanted to commit fraud, I know how I would do it because the client could be in their office just waiting to find out how long I'm willing to stand by a fax machine and wait for a fax to come back because they're the one that gave me the fax number in the first place. What you just heard is the snap of a better mousetrap. And for Brian Fox, a persistent idea quickly became a class project. I knew that I was going to build my, my business network by going back to Vandy. I knew for me personally that I wanted to live in Nashville. And so uh, having a Vandy MBA was critically important to me. And in, as you go through graduate school, a lot of it's class projects. Uh, we would actually have to come up with a project as a team to work on. And I asked my teammates if we could just use my idea for confirmation.com. And I got some great help developing my marketing plan, my technology plan, my operations plan from my classmates at Owen. It's spring of 2000. Brian Fox was ready with a groundbreaking business idea on the launch pad. He just needed the spark to start that engine. Then the skies turned dark. My father was killed in an accident at the end of my first year of business school. I got the late night phone call that my dad originally was missing. He and, and his next youngest brother had been hiking out in Sedona, Arizona, and he ju was just missing at that point in time. We landed in Phoenix. I went to get the rental car, and I remember my grandmother called and said that um, they'd found him. My dad, uh, they were hiking down a, a trail, and it was to the left of them was a cliff. And, and actually, my dad was by himself at this point in time because my uncle was tired and he was going to just get some rest back at the hotel. And so my dad was just going right behind the hotel to climb one of the, the mountains that was behind him. And uh, what happened was you, you go down this trail and it cuts up to the right to go uphill. And what we found was the camera was actually at the top right there. And what he most likely had done was had stopped at that turn to take a picture and had stepped backwards to maybe get a better view and had lost his footing and went over a 100-foot drop-off. They called out the dogs and the helicopters. They thought initially that he was just lost because he never came back to the hotel. And then it was that next morning uh, when they found the camera sitting on top of the ledge and looked over it that they saw my dad at the bottom.
right before my dad and his brother left for their trip, I'd actually shared with him the, the business plan, uh, my class project, and had him read it just to get his thoughts on it. And I remember um, I was married at the time, and we had a, a young, our first child, a daughter, and we were living in, in Green Hills in a condo, and my dad had come over and had read the business plan. And, and uh, while he didn't understand any of the accounting background, and, and, and uh, he'd never graduated from college, uh, he'd gone to college but didn't graduate, um, you know, I just wanted to, to get his take on it. And, um, you know, that was only about a week before he left on the trip. think a, a lot about it. I think, um, you know, the fact that uh, he was able to read the business plan uh, and at least know what maybe I was getting ready to get into um, was really cool. And so I'd lost my dad at that point, and I had this idea, and as we were going through the process of going through uh, you know, my dad's estate and wills and insurance policies, he had an insurance policy because we didn't have the money for me to start the business otherwise. And um, you know, I helped put myself through college by valet parking, by working at Abercrombie and & Fitch and, and being a salesman. And so uh, when my father passed away, he had a life insurance policy, and I talked to my mom and my brother, and they agreed to, to use some of the insurance policy as the seed capital for the business. And so at the end of my first year of graduate school, I incorporated the business on June 9th of 2000, and with $200,000 from his life insurance policy, I started Confirmation.com. So the business was to create a secure clearinghouse. So you've got accounting firms on one side, you've got banks on the other side, and they needed to either ask for information or to provide information. And again, historically, that was done through the post. And we created the clearinghouse where they could do that in a secure environment where both parties on either side were validated. So the accounting firms knew that that really was a bank and the right folks at the bank to respond to those confirmations. And the banks knew that those were legitimate accounting firms making requests for private client information. So if you think of, you know, Match.com, you got boys and girls on one side and girls on the other, right? You, you know, eBay, you had a buyer on one side, seller on the other side. Priceline was the same way. So that network model was what we created. It was a many-to-one-to-many scenario. And I, I found a group that said that they would be my advisors for a percentage of the business. And so I, I brought them into the business. And so we kind of were formulating the ideas and trying to put things in place. So there was four of them. Two were in Nashville, two were, were outside of Nashville. For 20% of the business initially, they came into the business and said that they were going to help me grow it, raise money, and get the business going. We were really virtual for the most part at that point in time, just meeting wherever we could at Starbucks, trying to formulate the ideas of the business and, and how we were going to grow it, what customers we wanted to try and go out and get in the strategy, and we needed to build the technology. And so we were, we were applying to the IBM to become a business partner to maybe get some discounted development and some, maybe some free tools that we could use from IBM. Uh, my uncle, who worked at IBM, was our first board member. And so he had been an entrepreneur in his own right, had started uh, a company in New York, then became the chancellor of education, and then was the president of the IBM Foundation up in New York. 
And so he was my first board member, which I thought would give me some legitimacy. And his last name didn't match mine. So I thought maybe people would think he was at arm's length and, and maybe give some credibility that he wasn't just a family member. Um, but remember those four advisors who own 20%, two of them attorneys? What I found out uh, was that they had actually been stealing from me. They were stealing cash. Call it cruel irony that the business designed to detect fraud had been taken for a ride. Well, they were running up credit card debt. They were putting bills onto the business that I didn't find until I went through the desk of one of them. I found all these unpaid bills and things that had been coming into the business that that they'd been charging on the business. Uh, I uncovered that they had been taking business trips, presumably for us, but as I looked at, at their itineraries and email chains, uh, they had been investigating, you know, looking at investing in other businesses or ramping up other businesses that they were pretending to help out. And so I, at that point, I realized that I was in a tough situation as a young, you know, young 25-year-old CEO at that point in time. That's what the love of money does. So when I found out that I was being stolen from, I picked up the phone and I called Chris. Chris is Chris Shellhorn, an expert banker turned consultant. A top Atlanta law firm had connected him with Brian to sell the confirmation idea to the top 10 banks and accounting firms. And when I called him and told him what I had found and uncovered, he and I spent probably the next couple of weeks formulating a plan of how do I extricate myself from that group? And, you know, we were pretty much out of money at that point in time because they'd run me dry. And, you know, I wanted to go after them. But Chris's advice was, look, nobody's going to invest in a, in a business with no revenue that's embroiled in, in, in a lawsuit. So you got to take your lumps and you just got to figure out an, an agreeable way to get out of this. And so we did that. I essentially paid them to go away. They owed us money and I agreed that we would uh, sign a note, basically forgive the amount of money that they'd stolen from me and I wouldn't press charges. Brian and Chris would become a Gen X baby boomer team about 22, 23 years older than I am. For Chris's background, he, he clearly had the banking experience and the transactional and online experience. So I always say that he had the, the banking background and, and the wisdom and experience, whereas I had the youth and passion and the idea and the accounting experience. And so for the two of us, it was a great match and pairing. And you look at so many different businesses, whether it's Tractor Supply or, or even Facebook, you, there's really two people who are running the, those businesses. And it was a perfect match and a perfect pairing for Chris and I in this business. I brought Chris in as the chairman and CEO of the business and I was the president of the business. And so while I might've been the person out there speaking and, and on stage and advocating for the business, Chris had all the operations experience, and so he was teaching me that along the way. We were on the road so much that the business, it didn't matter where the business per se was headquartered because we were traveling and our customers were all over the U.S. or even global. Everybody in the early days, we paid with equity and a promise of tomorrow. My next two employees, uh, Dave Malone and Jeanette Hauser, and it was really the four of us in my, my grandmother's garage. You know, I didn't have the ability to pay them, really. And I brought Chris in as the chairman and CEO because I knew I didn't have the business background and operating background to make this business a success. But yet I knew that I owed my, my mom and my brother 
I owed them that money back and it was more important to me that I have success in the business than that I retain some title. And we were trying to raise money and the internet bubble had just burst and and we knew that that was a tough moment for the business because the dot-com business was, uh, you know, the valuations had decreased. And yet we felt we had a great idea. The coveted Chancellor's Fund at Vanderbilt thought so too and was ready to write a big check. We pitched on September 7th. September 8th when they called us and three days later 9-11 happens. the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know it if it was a commercial. Just a few moments ago, apparently, we have very little information available. We are, uh, we have, I understand, an eyewitness on the phone right now. For the two years after 9-11, uh, there was no money to be found. After 9-11, we regrouped. We said, what are we going to do? Uh, again, we felt like we had a great idea. The market had, was telling us that we needed to build this, that they saw value in our idea. I would go into a bank, I'd go into an accounting firm, and I'd show them a, a PowerPoint deck, essentially, of click-through slides that I had mocked up to look like internet web pages, and said, if we build this, would you use it? And, and got several of them on the bank side and the accounting firm side to sign a letter that said, yeah, if you built it, we'd be interested in using it. So we were really taking investments as small as $500 to $1,000 or $5,000 from people. Any, any aunt, uncle, cousin, relative, high school friend, college roommates, their parents, anybody who kind of felt sorry for us that we could convince to invest in the business. That patchwork of small investments was probably the worst way to raise capital. But at that point, it was the only way. Everybody just took draws as, as we could. We would sit around the table every Friday and say, what bills do we going to pay? And, and with what money we had, did anybody need any? And I was running up the rest of the tab on my personal credit card, borrowing money from my mom and my in-laws to live on, and uh, doing everything they tell you not to do, uh, which was running up your personal debt and putting everything you had in the business. The first actual test of Confirmation.com did not disappoint. We, we had a whole map, and it was a day that was scheduled. We knew when the transaction was going to take place. Greenwich was our accounting firm. Pinnacle Bank was where we were banking because they were going to be our first customer. And it was all scheduled, mapped out. I was at one location. Dave Malone was at the other location. And Jeanette was back at the home office making sure the technology all worked. And we had a whole schedule of who called who when just to make sure we hand-walked this thing through. And the accounting firm logs into the website. They make a request, so they put the name of the company, the account number. There's an electronic signature component, so the client actually has to authorize the request to be released to the bank. So that was the uniqueness and part of why we got the patents, because it was a four-party system, not, not just a three-party system. But then the bank can log in. They would see the request, they'd respond to the request, and the response then uh, was available for the accounting firm to log back into the application and then to download the completed version of the confirmation that they could put into their work files. So the whole process took under an hour, that very first confirmation, uh, in what used to take upwards of eight to 12 weeks, but it was the first confirmation that went through the system. Even though Brian had a product that worked, solved a problem that was obvious to him, and a few clients to back that up, Confirmation.com for years was still unable to gain real traction. 
All that changed quickly when a few market events exposed the problem and his solution to everyone. At the largest fraud Europe had ever seen was a company called Parmalat. For here at Parmalat, the global dairy and food conglomerate, they've been cooking the books. And they had faked a $4.9 billion bank account. And I remember uh, a year before the Parmalat fraud happened, our first interview had been done. Keaton Ward at the Tennessean ran a front-page business cover story. In that article, uh, there was a gentleman who had been the managing partner of a local accounting firm, one of the big four accounting firms uh, at KPMG, who had said that the auditing of cash is one of the, the biggest wastes of time and at least important parts of the audit. And I had pitched him to invest in our business in his kitchen. And I couldn't believe that, that somebody so powerful had said that in the business section of, of the Tennessean, because we were trying to raise money, and that wasn't going to be helpful. But a, a year and nine days after he had made that quote, uh, the Parmalat fraud happened, and what I had predicted came true. And we moved from the, the cover of the business section of the, of the Tennessean to the cover of the business section of, of the New York Times. Non credo assolutamente che le banche italiane o quelle americane possano dirsi victim, vittime di questa frode. A colossal financial scandal had unfolded in Italy. A Parmalat accountant, Alessandro Bassi, this week threw himself off a bridge, leaving a wife and two children. Bank of America was an unwitting victim. Parmalat executives had used Bank of America's name to commit their fraud. They never had an account at Bank of America, but told their auditors they did. And so when the auditors were misdirected to send a confirmation to whom they thought was Bank of America, which was really the executives at Parmalat, Bank of America for 10 years, quote, was confirming the cash in the bank and therefore the revenue of the business. And at the end of 10 years, they had borrowed billions of dollars from the public market and were a public company. And when the debt holders of Parmalat said, why aren't you servicing your debt? Ultimately, they issued a press release in December of 2003 on their website that said, sorry, we lied, that account doesn't exist and never has. It was precisely what Brian Fox had predicted. And Confirmation.com was the solution. They had said, you know, why can't accountants figure out uh, if a bank account is real or not? And I said, we have the technology to do it. And so we started getting phone calls at that point in time. That really put us on the map. The Parmalat fraud put us on the map. And when Bank of America mandated the use of our service, that put us over the top. All the executives did at Parmalat was provide a fake fax number to the staff auditor at the accounting firm and told them it was Bank of America's fax number. And it was that simple. And that's the same fraud that happened at Wirecard. They just provided fake mailing addresses. HealthSouth. Confirmation fraud, uh, Satyam, which is India's largest fraud ever, fake mailing addresses. You see it over and over and over again, unfortunately. Confirmations are one of those services that are one of those tasks that takes place at the staff level. And so once you have done it, you kind of forget about it. You hate it. You didn't like it. You don't want to deal with it. And you just let the interns and the staff deal with it. So other than me, who had done it and wanted to change it, everybody else just wanted to forget about it. Nobody saw it as being that critical to the audit. Nobody saw it as being that important. And yet I saw 
the direct correlation to audit confirmations and revenue and cash in the bank and how easy it would have been for me to commit fraud. And so I said, if, if I can figure out how to commit fraud on these firms, why aren't they seeing this? Coming months and years would see more financial scandal and very public examples of the need for Confirmation.com. In one case, a CEO tried to kill himself knowing that Confirmation.com, Brian's very own technology, was about to expose him. In this episode of American Greed. If you're not trading with the best resources, it's time to get smarter. He's a trailblazer with a fanatic ambition. And by all appearances, Russell Wasendorf leads one of the most successful trading firms of its kind. Everything that I heard was fabulous. It was just something that everybody wanted to be a part of. But if there's one thing Wasendorf knows how to sell, it's a brilliant lie. Do you have um, one of the people who helped figure this whole thing out? Confirmation.com is a company that played a big role in discovering the fraud in the first place at PFG Best. The company's founder, Brian Fox, is joining us now. This is just- We're watching the news. And we had, we had heard that this fraud was coming out uh, or had been announced. There had been the CEO of a business who had tried to commit suicide and that uh, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars was missing. And we looked in our system and sure enough, we saw that his business was in our system, but the confirmation had never been approved by the CEO. And so we knew at that point in time that the auditors had tried to use our service to validate the confirmations, but that the CEO had blocked their ability to do so. Well, it begs the question of how many more um, firms out there are put, how many more of them could be? How much more fraud do we not yet know about? We were in all the, the national press. Um, I was on Fox Business News. We were talking to the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, talking about how our technology has been there and uncovers these types of frauds. And, and also, I was predicting that we were going to continue to see more of these types of frauds until the profession fully adopted the use of Confirmation.com. There was a private equity firm that I talked to. They came to us and they just wanted to thank us. I thought they were coming to think about investing in the business. And as I sat down with them to tell them about our business, uh, they said, no, they'd come to Nashville specifically to thank us for the use of our service and told us that we had saved them $25 million. So before the Bank of America mandate, we were doing well. We had a small team. We probably had less than 10 people. Um, And we were doing well. We were growing year over year, multiple digit growth. And when Bank of America mandated the use of our service, we probably had about just over 200 accounting firms using our service. And while we operated across the US, there weren't a ton of banks using us at that point in time. When Bank of America mandated the use of our service, we went from about 200 accounting firms using us to five months later, we had over 4,500 firms globally using our service. When we come back, an offer they couldn't refuse and the simple mathematical equation that makes a company attractive to buyers. Being an entrepreneur is a difficult and often lonely journey. Hi, I'm John Murdoch, COO at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. And we're here to support entrepreneurs by connecting them with the critical resources to create, launch, and grow their businesses. Through each phase of the entrepreneurial life cycle, founders get access to entrepreneur advisors who have been there and done that, 
with successful exits from multi-million dollar companies and C-suite business professionals in Nashville's top industries. Whether it's learning the fundamentals of creating a business plan, to writing a sales program, or securing introductions to potential customers, the entrepreneurial process is full of obstacles that can be challenging for a founder to overcome alone. We've built a community where entrepreneurs can learn from each other and expert advisors, anchored by best-in-class programming. Nashville has a strong legacy of entrepreneurship, and we aim to keep that legacy alive by fueling our city's entrepreneurial spirit, from innovator to investor and back again. Join us at ec.co. The initial plan was when we hit cash flow positive, we would sell the business. I mean, so we hit cash flow positive in 2009 and 2010, the market was terrible. And um, so we said, thanks, but no thanks to the market offers. And we paid dividends for the next few years. We paid off our debt plus interest. We paid dividends and the shareholders were happy. All along, the same four people had worked together and actually gotten along. Maybe it was the early days and close quarters. You know, I was and was the largest shareholder in the business. Chris was the second largest shareholder in the business. My next two employees, uh, Dave Malone and Jeanette Hauser, were, were in the top 10 as well. And it was really the four of us in my, my grandmother's garage. And we only had one phone line. I remember if, if you picked up the phone and somebody was on a call, what would happen is you'd start hearing somebody dialing. And you'd have to apologize to the sales call because somebody else was on the phone line, right? Because we couldn't afford a commercial line. It was a residential line because we were at my, my grandparents' house. A $60 million private equity investment in 2017 led to more growth. You see, Confirmation.com wasn't just adding customers. It was building a customer network. And with the network, once you achieve a base level of adoption, the growth becomes exponential. Quickly, Confirmation.com was operating in 174 countries. And Brian Fox, a numbers guy, had numbers that looked stellar on paper. Oh, and that sale to Thomson Reuters? It occurred in 2019, just two years after the private equity investment. And this time, Brian sold the entire company, the company that had taken almost a decade to just break even. The product that took so long for customers to figure out how bad they needed it, Brian sold that company, Confirmation.com, for $430 million. There's the old rule of 40. Um, your, your growth rate plus your, your bottom line margin, as long as it's over 40, you know, that's what they look for. So you could have, say, a 60% growth rate, and if you were losing 10%, then you had a 50, and that's above the rule of 40. Right. If you had a 20% growth rate and had a bottom line of 40, you had a total of, of 60. So rule of 40. Right. And so that's what the investors out there were looking for. They were kind of using this back of the envelope rule of thumb, rule of 40. And so we clearly were well above that in, in all cases. You know, in 2009, we hit number 96 on the Inc. 500. Uh, the next year, we were number 169. And the eight years after that, until we sold ultimately to Thomson Reuters, we were on the Inc. 5000. So we had a, a significant growth rate, even as our base continued to grow. As I look back at the journey of Confirmation.com, one of the things that, that's probably most people don't know that I'm most proud about is the fact that the four of us that were in the garage in those early days uh, were there the day we sold 19 years later to Thomson Reuters. When we sold to Thompson, everybody went to work for him. 
Um, Chris and Jeanette, who were two of the four in, in the garage, their intent was always to retire two years after the Great Hill investment. And so that time frame was coming up in December of, of 2019. And so everybody was on board when we were acquired, and then they both retired at the end of uh, 2019. Patience paid off for investors who had probably written off the idea of a return. My in-laws uh, invested. They put $25,000 into the business, and, and they were investing simply because I was their son-in-law. No doubt they said, you know, here's a guy with a CPA and an MBA and can't figure out why he can't get a job. But they put $25,000 in, and ultimately when we sold the business, uh, that $25,000 turned into over, well, they got a check for $1,042,000 at that point in time after getting some dividends along the way. What I'm doing now is in, I've been doing it for probably the last four or five years is investing in entrepreneurs. I absolutely love the passion that they bring, the, the energy, the new ideas, the creativity to solve problems. And, and I always appreciated those people, either the entrepreneurs at the time who were helping me or the people who had already run businesses and been successful entrepreneurs in their own right. And so I, I kind of feel that that's my way to give back. My unofficial motto for our company was we help the good guys catch the bad guys. That was my mission. That was our mission for the business. I felt that, that you know, if, if my business was only about efficiency, I'd have been bored a long time ago and probably sold it. But I felt like we had a mission and a purpose every day that we woke up because I knew the bad guys were out there trying to get around us, trying to circumvent us. My mom was a police officer when she came out of, uh, of Vanderbilt. She was in the first class of female police officers. My brother became a police officer. For me, this was my way to give back and, and help catch the bad guys. As an investor, uh, you wouldn't trust your, you know, your child to a doctor who's, who's using outdated medical procedures. Investors shouldn't have to trust uh, or, or use uh, outdated audit procedures uh, to make sure that their money's taken care of. All right, Brian Fox, uh, confirmation.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our kickoff episode of season two. Be sure to subscribe at ec.co slash circle back and follow, rate, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Circle Back is made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Also, thank you to our media partner, The Nashville Post. Keep your pulse on all things Nashville business and more by subscribing to their newsletter at nashvillepost.com. And a shout out to our friends at Lightning 100 for supporting the show. A big thanks to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen. Script writing by Demetria Kaladimos. And a thank you to the rest of the EC staff. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back.